0: Well, hey, and welcome to the Cory Doctorow podcast. I'm back again. Had a great week. We do a thing twice a year at EFF called Focus Week, where we uh, cancel all the meetings and people do kind of longer form individual and group projects that require more focus, hence the name. I read some very long law review articles, which was interesting, and also submissions to government inquiries on antitrust. It was all very exciting, and all the more exciting in light of the fact that I, in the spirit of biting off more than I can chew, looks like I'm going to do a book for a publisher that I will hope to name soon about interoperability. We're just negotiating that now. That means that there will be eight books of mine out between now and the end of 2025. That's a lot of books. I'm going to be spending a lot of time on the road. I will be writing that book in addition to the other stuff I'm working on, like the book Picks and Shovels, the second Marty Hench book, which is chugging along. Worked on that every day last week. And also the short story Moral Hazard that I'm writing for MIT Tech Review that is now nearly done. I expect to be finished with it this week. And I can start in on my next Little Brother story when that's done. I do have some talks coming up. I'll be virtually present at Boss Cone 59 that's Boston's annual science fiction convention. i am be doing a reading there, the first ever reading of Red Team Blues, the first volume of my major new series, the Marty Hinch series. We'll also be on a panel for City Lights Books, again virtually, February 27th, celebrating the release of Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. And then I'm going to be keynoting the uh, Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference in Philly, again, virtually, April 19th to 20th. So I hope you can make one or more of those, very different subject matters, all of them, as befits the kind of eclectic things that I do in my life. And speaking of eclectic things, this week I had my (laughs) amputated, excised femur scanned by the nice people at Thingergy. And if you go to the Internet Archive and search for Cory Doctorow Femur, you can get an extremely high-resolution 3D model, either an STL or OBJ model of that, that you can 3D print. And this week, I'm going to be taking that femur down to a jeweler in downtown LA and having it cast in brass and made into a cane topper. So, uh, good times ahead. So, this week's reading is going to be uh, the first part of a three-part series I did for my column on Medium called The Internet Heist. It's really the story of how the copyright wars were, you know, we think of them as being about copyright infringement, but they were really a bid to allow a single industry and its executives to decide how we would all use technology in the future. Something that has more or less happened, although a different industry got to claim that prize, and something that I really devoted myself to fighting against. Uh, As I say, it's in three parts. The first part, What I'm going to read to you now, The Early Days of the War to Control the Future, starts with literally my first job on the day at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was 20 years ago last month. So, quite a long time that I've been at this, now that I think of it. All right then, here is The Internet Heist, Part 1, The Early Days of the War to Control the Future, from doctoro.medium.com. A polite marketplace. That's what the movie studio executive said he wanted to create. It was my first day at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. One of our supporters had been at the National Association of Broadcasters show in Las Vegas the week before. Coming back through the convention center late at night, he had stumbled on a quote open meeting, being held by the Motion Picture Association of America's Copy Protection Technical Working Group. It was an open meeting, in the sense that anyone who knew about it was welcome to attend, but they didn't actually tell anyone it was happening, and they held it in the dead of night. On the spur of the moment, that supporter decided to attend. What he heard was genuinely bizarre, and it would have been absurd if it wasn't so alarming. That dead-of-night NAB meeting's purpose was to announce the formation of a new inter-industry consortium, the Broadcast Protection Discussion Group, or BPDG, which would hold its inaugural open meeting the following week at an LAX airport hotel that would be convenient for the tech reps who flew in from Silicon Valley, and for studio and TV reps based in LA. BPDG's purpose? To steal the future. This was 2002. The dot-com crash, accelerated by 9-11, was still underway. The tech industry was reeling from the financial bloodbath and fragmented among hundreds of small struggling companies. The few giants in the sector were seemingly fragile, with Apple on the ropes, Microsoft a convicted monopolist, Netscape in tatters, Yahoo, an also ran. Contrast this with the entertainment industry riding high despite the scare talk about Napster's existential threat. Film, TV, broadcast, and cable were more concentrated than at any time in living memory. This consolidation allowed them to extract high profits from their customers and their talent and, in a shrewd bit of let's you and he fight-ism, to pit the two groups against each other with a narrative that held that the true predators on creative labor were the fans who loved it not the sprawling multinational corporations that exploited it. The entertainment industry had a well-developed playbook honed through fights over piano rolls, radio broadcast, cable, and the VCR. First, the incumbent firms would decry the new technology as a threat to the very idea of culture. John Philip Sousa claimed that the piano roll would cost the human race its voice boxes, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. Then they would suborn the courts and Congress to humble the companies that backed the new technology. Finally, they would absorb the new technology, merging with or buying those companies. The new conglomerates would continue to develop new technologies, but only bring them to market in ways that respected the right of incumbents to steer the future of the industry and our culture. Take Sony, the upstart electronics giant that had brought the VCR to market, without seeking permission from the TV or film industries. The resulting battle saw years of scare talk. MPAA spokesmillionaire millionaire Jack Valenti likened the VCR to the Boston Strangler. And racist yellow peril rhetoric that implied that Japan was seeking revenge for its defeat in World War II by waging soft war on the all-American culture industry. The fight wasn't confined to the court of public opinion. It was also waged in actual court. Eight years of litigation ended with a landmark Supreme Court ruling in Sony's favor. But Sony was defeated in victory. After acquiring a string of U.S. entertainment companies, it found itself hopelessly compromised, transformed into a timid industry follower. No better example of this exists than Sony's failure to launch an MP3 player— The company that brought us the Walkman, poster child for home taping as killing music, was so cowed that it sat out the portable digital music revolution, fielding a series of abysmal, DRM-shackled, abject failures, while Apple ran circles around it with rev after rev of the iPod. Sony was playing in a polite marketplace— Rather than making the best devices it could conceive of, it made devices whose driving ethos was, don't piss off the content barons. That was the point of the BPDG, to turn the whole internet and every device connected to it into an agent of the polite marketplace. The inciting event for the BPDG was America's long-delayed digital TV transition. Ever since ATSC, the U.S. digital TV standard, had been formalized, a string of FCC chairs had promised to wean America off the old analog NTSC TV standard. Nominally, this was about modernizing the U.S. broadcast world, but the real prize was the electromagnetic spectrum that would be freed up by this transition. Cellular demand was booming, and the FCC had successfully tinkered with selling spectrum licenses to mobile companies rather than simply giving exclusive and virtually irrevocable grants to broadcasters and other commercial users of America's airwaves. U.S. broadcasters were squatting on vast swathes of spectrum, much of it unused but politically impossible to wrest back, And the FCC understood that switching from analog to digital TV would allow it to reclaim all of that analog TV bandwidth and auction it for billions to wireless carriers. But every deadline for the DTV transition came and went without any meaningful digital TV uptake in America. Other countries managed the switch, but not the USA. Now, it wasn't like America loved low-res analog TV. Rather, the early decision to make the U.S. digital transition into a high-definition transition created an impossible-to-break vapor lock. There wasn't any high-def content in the TV broadcasters' libraries. Why would they have created high-def content when all of America's TVs were low-definition? There also weren't any high-def TVs in America's living rooms. Why would Americans buy high-def TVs if the broadcasters weren't airing any high-def programming? And of course, Advertisers weren't going to produce and pay extra for high-def ads if they would be broadcast and or seen in standard resolution. All that meant that broadcasters weren't willing to invest in digital broadcasting infrastructure if there wasn't any high-def programming, ads, or sets. Other countries, like the UK, had pulled off their own DTV transitions by focusing on digital standard def TV, which could be viewed on an analog set with nothing more than a converter box. But the U.S. didn't look across the Atlantic for its DTV comparisons. Rather, the nation glared suspiciously across the Pacific at Japan, where widespread adoption of digital high-def provided useful fodder for a fresh round of yellow peril dog whistles about America, quote, "...losing the DTV wars." All of this might have gone on forever, save for the intervention of Rep. Billy Tozen, a flamboyant, lavishly corrupt, well-connected and well-greased congressman from Louisiana. As we learned at that inaugural BPDG meeting, Rep. Billy was committed to the DTV transition and he was willing to introduce legislation mandating a polite marketplace. All he needed from industry was the text of the legislation— a standard that he could incorporate into a bill dictating what DTV receivers must and must not do. That was the role of the BPDG, to create a technical standard for the DTV transition. That standard would protect content, recall that BPDG's convening body was the Content Protection Technical Working Group, And this protection would lure the film industry, which had deep libraries of high-definition content in the form of 35mm movies, to license its product for broadcast. Advertisers would pay giant premiums to run commercials that interrupted free, high-def, over-the-air Hollywood blockbusters, and that would cover the cost of DTV infrastructure upgrades. These same movies would stampede Americans into buying DTVs. The FCC would finally be able to claw back analog TV spectrum and sell it for billions. It would all be done so smoothly that none of the overwhelmingly elderly broadcast TV watchers who vote like crazy would even notice that the feds had broken their old TV sets. Congress would thus be spared the electoral wrath of TV worshipping seniors. A new generation of Americans would discover the joy of free TV. Mobile carriers would get a Spectrum bonanza. Everyone would win. All that remained was for the BPDG to draw up the rules that would lure Hollywood to release high budget feature films for over the air broadcast. But there was one problem. Those airwaves belong to the American people. The rules that govern their use prohibit broadcasters from encrypting their signals. Any over-the-air broadcast must be in the clear, tunable by any equipment that conforms with the public standards from the superannuated analog NTSC to ATSC, its shiny high-def digital successor. The FCC and Billy Tozen could offer the entertainment industry just about anything to get the DTV transition done except allowing them to scramble Hollywood movies. That meant that anyone who followed the ATSC standard would be able to build a high-def digital VCR, one that would let you capture your local broadcaster's programming to a hard drive and from there load it into a hypothetical future video iPod or a future video Napster. The studios were adamant that for so long as this was a possibility, they would boycott DTV. However, they carefully avoided promising that resolving this issue would result in them opening their libraries for over-the-air transmission. The purpose of BPDG was to find a way to square this unsquarable circle. What I'm about to describe is really weird. It's so weird, so stupid, that you might think that you're misunderstanding it. You're not. It's really just that weird. At the heart of the BPDG was something called the broadcast flag. The broadcast flag was a single bit, a zero or a one, that could be embedded in the header of a DTV broadcast. If it was set to one, then any equipment that encountered that one would be forced to pretend that the unencrypted video that it accompanied was actually encrypted. I told you it was weird. Imagine if you had a rule that said that buildings erected on public lands couldn't have door locks because public buildings should be open to the public. The broadcast flag solution would be to institute a rule that says, if the doorknob of one of these buildings has a sign hanging on it that reads locked, then everyone must behave as though the door were locked. As you wrap your head around this idiotic proposition, you might be tempted to think it would never work. After all, to get everyone to treat doorknobs with locked signs as though they were actually locked would require a surreal, far-reaching regulation that regulated all kinds of normal everyday conduct that is currently unregulated. Actually, that was the point. Here's the outline of the broadcast flag rule. All devices capable of receiving a digital broadcast must, one, Check to see if there's a broadcast flag bit set to 1 in the video stream, and if so, 2. The device must encrypt the video stream before saving it, and 3. The device must not allow the video to be transferred from the receiver to another device unless that device is approved, and 4. All approved devices must keep all their saved video streams encrypted, and 5. Approved devices must also be designed to resist modification. This is a five point program for creating a polite marketplace. To prevent wildcats from pulling a Sony and inventing a new kind of digital VCR that can record these unencrypted broadcasts on public airwaves, you just make a rule that says that no one is allowed to make digital VCRs unless they are designed to stop, quote, unauthorized redistribution. Note that unauthorized is doing a lot of work here. Unauthorized is by no means the same as illegal. Copyright law includes a suite of limitations and exceptions that allow for a wide range of unauthorized uses, including those governed by fair use, but also the de minimis legal standard. Banning unauthorized activity is by no means the same thing as banning copyright infringement. Rather, it's a way to ban anything that a giant entertainment company finds distasteful, whether or not that activity is actually illegal. All this needs to be understood in light of the then-brand-new Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, of 1998, a Clinton-era legislative coup won by the same entertainment companies that were pushing for the broadcast flag. The DMCA is a big weird ball of copyright nonsense, but the relevant clause for this history is Section 1201, a rule that makes it a very serious crime to bypass an effective means of access control sometimes called Digital Rights Management or DRM, for a copyrighted work. DMCA 1201 provides for a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for anyone who makes or shares a tool or information that could help you make a tool to bypass DRM for a first offense. When the DMCA was enacted, there was widespread alarm at the breadth of Section 1201, the law does not confine its scope to DRM breaking that results in copyright infringement. Rather, it encompasses any act of DRM breaking whether or not copyright is violated. This means that a video that has even the most minimal, farcical DRM can't be jailbroken without risking years and years and years in prison. That means that the preferences of the company that wraps a file in DRM have the force of law, because removing the wrapper without permission for any reason is a crime. Copyright's limitations and exceptions, the same limitations and exceptions the Supreme Court leaned on to legalize Sony's VCR back in 1984, are now a dead letter. Simply add the thinnest veneer of DRM and your wishes become law, a kind of felony contempt of business model. A polite marketplace. The Idea of the Broadcast Flag 1. make it illegal to create a digital TV decoder unless it added DRM, 2. only allow companies to implement that DRM if they promise not to hurt giant entertainment company shareholders feelings, and 3. put anyone who broke the DRM rather than playing by the rules in 2 above in prison for 5 years. Back to the BPDG. These meetings had four major power blocks. 1. the movie studios, 2 the TV networks, often a division of the movie studios, three, the tech companies, four, the consumer electronics companies. When EFF turned up at that first BPDG meeting, we represented a fifth block, five, public interest groups. Groups one through four were interested in creating a set of rules that would determine the characteristics of any device capable of receiving, that is, tuning and demodulating, an ATSC signal, Group 5, us, was interested in preserving the very idea of general-purpose computing. Here's a thing that might not be immediately obvious. Every single general-purpose computer is potentially a digital TV tuner. You see, computers are general-purpose in a highly technical and inescapable sense. Every computer is capable of running any valid program. Some computers are faster, some are slower... Some have more memory and some have less, but every one of them can process any string of valid instructions. Computer science has produced a wealth of breakthroughs in general-purpose computing architectures, but has failed to produce a computer that can run most programs. That's how bad guys can get your printer or your smart sex toy or your thermostat to run malicious software. At the heart of each of these gadgets is a general-purpose computer. By design, that computer is only used a small set of special purposes, but there's no way to stop an attacker who gains access to it from running any program they can write. In the pre-digital days, tuning a radio signal required an analog tuner, a circuit built around a quartz crystal whose vibrational frequency determined the radio's capabilities, that is whether it was an AM-FM set, a shortwave, a CB radio, a TV, or a satellite uplink. But digital computers don't need crystals to send and receive radio signals. Instead, they can become software-defined radios, or SDRs. An SDR is a general-purpose computer that uses an oscillator, it's a commodity electronics component, to tune into or transmit different radio frequencies and generate or decode radio waves using digital signal processing code. STRs are to radio as computers were to tabulating machines. Computers, with their inescapable general-purposeness, are able to replace the separate electromechanical tabulators that we once used to ring up purchases, calculate ballistics, produce actuarial statistics, and tally the census. These one-off, purpose-built machines are all dissolved into the general-purpose slurry of modern computing, reduced to mere applications that all run on the same computing hardware. In the same way, any computer performing as a software-defined radio can serve as a Wi-Fi card, a Bluetooth card, a TV tuner, an AM-FM tuner, a shortwave, a satellite uplink, and so on. Different applications might require different antennas or power, of course, and some computers might be too slow to be reliable for some apps, but in general, every computer is potentially every radio in the same way that every computer is potentially every tabulator. The upshot of all of this is that any broadcast regulation that regulated digital TV tuners would actually regulate all computers. Let's recap, shall we? In early 2002, the MPAA convened a semi-secret inter-industry body to negotiate a mandatory standard for digital TV receivers. A powerful congressman... Billy Tozen, had promised them that whatever they came up with would have the force of law. These rules were nominally about what digital TV receivers could do, but they were actually about what every single computer could do. That's the scene setting. Next week, I'll tell you how Intel and the entertainment companies played the tech and electronics companies for suckers, how Billy Tozen bailed on big content, how the FCC stepped in to do his dirty work, and how the courts overturned this whole mess. I'll also tell you about the plot to plug the analog hole, a.k.a. the A-hole affair. All right, that's this week's edition. I'll talk to you next week. Hope you uh, are enjoying yourself. And um, I think by next week I might even have my brand new cane. Bye now. You've been listening to the Cory Doctorow Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of Arn, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time, self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.